Let's pray, and then we will jump into the study. Oh, Father, you are good, you are gracious, and we come before you in, in humble adoration and praise and thanksgiving of, of who you are and what you've done through history and what you've done on our behalf through sending your son Jesus to live the, the perfect life that we should have and die the death that we deserve. We're just so thankful for that gospel and how the, the Old Testament story just points to, to, that, to that reality, to that story that all history was pointing towards and will ultimately finish in. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're beginning the ending of our Old Testament study through the book Dominion and Dynasty by Stephen Dempster. And we're going to be looking at the last books of the writings which remembers the third and final book of the Tanakh um, ordering of the Hebrew Bible. And so you can sort of think of this as the last subsection, the last subsection of our Old Testaments. And what occurs in this subsection is the historical narrative. So the, the storyline picks back up where we left off at the end of 2 Kings with, with the pause for prophetic commentary. And now, so the storyline picks up and moves forward with the books of Daniel, Esther, and, and Ezra and Nehemiah. And then the Old Testament concludes with, with a sort of summary account and, and pointing forwards with the book of Chronicles. And so the book of Daniel, which is where we're going to start, is, is pretty neatly divided into two large sections of its 12 chapters. Chapters 1 through 6 is the, is the narrative of Daniel in Babylonian captivity. And then uh, chapters 7 through 12 are mostly visionary chapters where Daniel has visions pertaining to the people of God in the end of times. So end times visions. And what we see in the narrative is Daniel being faithful to the Lord... Daniel being faithful to Yahweh even as he is in exile and facing pretty severe, pretty extreme persecution from a, a pagan kingdom. And the visions of the latter chapters are often characterized as, as apocalyptic as they deal with the, the future, the, the future world order with, a, with an emphasis on Israel or, or you could say the, the people of God with both imminent and distant fulfillments in those visions. Or you can think of them as prophecies, which we're going to look at in more detail when we get there. But if we look at the, the context of the book of Daniel and its place in the overall canon, Dempster's argues, what he's argu been arguing this, this whole book, which is that if we look at where it's placed in the storyline, in the context, we gain more insight in the meaning of the book and the, and the purpose of the book being in the Old Testament, its function in the Old Testament. And so if we view Daniel 
as a resumption of the narrative that was suspended at the end of Kings, then Daniel has a, a fundamentally different function in the Old Testament. We see what, what faithfulness looks like for the people of God in exile. And more importantly, we begin to see an answer to the, to the narrative tension, the, the narrative question that we've been sort of a cliffhanger on. And that is what happens to the people of God after the exile? What's going to happen to the people of God after the exile? What is the fate of Israel? And we saw, if you remember, we saw many promises of a hopeful future in the prophets. And, and Daniel would begin to see the answer regarding the, the destiny for the people of God who are, who are currently in exile. We get to see a, a clearer picture of that future. And we see as the, the narrative unfolds that, that God protects Daniel and his friends from, from pagan contamination, idolatry, literal fiery furnace, um, wild beasts, lions, right? So the point is for the reader that God has not abandoned his people. God has not abandoned his people that, that fear him. And in the, in the visions in the book, which there's numerous visions, the, the people of God, Israel, at this point in redemptive history, see that there, there are universal salvific implications, universal implications for salvation for them and all those who will fear the Lord. The Old Testament professor um, Mitchell Chase says this in connection to the larger story that Daniel plays in the Old Testament. He says, What we see in the visions is all earthly kingdoms are relative to God's sovereign appointment. The multiple rescues of the characters in the story connect to the redemptive plan writ large in the word of God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Whoever may be in power and whatever empire seeks dominion, the Most High still rules over all He has made. He lifts up the humble and brings down the proud. And from His outstretched arm come both rescue and judgment. His enemies cannot stop Him, so His people can always trust Him. I think it's a pretty good summary couple statements of the book of Daniel um, and its function in the storyline. And it's those truths that we see throughout the book of Daniel that would bring great comfort right, to the original audience of the book, to the original hearers and readers. Now, Dempster makes the, the argument, and I think this is, this is a debated argument. I think it's pretty con- I'm pretty convinced by it, but that is... In the resumption of the narrative in Daniel, there, there's, he points out there's several echoes back to the beginning of Genesis. Um, and in Daniel 1, one of these is Daniel refuses to eat at the king's table, right? As he knew by, by taking his food and drink, by taking Nebuchadnezzar's food and drink, the ultimate goal was to make Daniel devoted to Babylon and to, and to forsake Yahweh and, and his ways, and in this way, the food was forbidden. And a, and a strong temptation for Daniel that, that points back to the forbidden fruit in the garden. The, the dream that Daniel interprets um, that Nebuchadnezzar has in chapter 2, right? There's, there's a gigantic human figure uh, or gigantic human image made of different materials, 
different materials from head to toe. This giant human image, which we know from Daniel's interpretation of the dream later in chapter 2, represents the kingdoms of the world, including Babylon. And we see that, that a rock is made without hands, is taken from, from a mountain, and destroys this mighty figure. The, God's kingdom will be ushered in and, and never be destroyed. That's, that's the point of the vision or the dream. And Dempster finds this dream to be a parody or, or sort, sort of a mockery of the divine creation of all things in Genesis 1 where God makes humans in the divine likeness to rule the world. In this dream, a gigantic figure made by human hands, so made in the image of humans, represents the hubris and pride of man, which will one day in the future be utterly destroyed and succeeded by the kingdom of God. And the small stone, I think this is fascinating, right? The small stone that comes from the mountain and, and destroys the gigantic figure, brings to mind, I think, the, the story of David and Goliath, where, where God's anointed king kills another giant figure, Goliath, who, who stands opposed to Yahweh. And what does David kill him with? small stone, that's right, a small stone. And we know from, if we, if we think about our New Testaments, um, Luke 20 <laughs> Verses 17 through 18, Jesus proclaims there that, that he is the rock. You could even say he is the stone. He's the, the rock that will break and crush. Therefore, I think Jesus will, will be the one. We can make this connection by putting our whole Bibles together. But Jesus will be the one to usher in the kingdom and exercise total dominion in heaven on earth and destroy one day the kingdoms of man. So notice, right, we're gaining a bit more clarity and, and things are coming together in, in what Dempster calls a more systematic way than, than what we saw in the prophecies, in the latter prophets. Right, we're getting more detail on um, this end times fate, destiny. And we'll see this even more as Daniel has more visions from the Lord. But Dempster mentioned, again, quite a few more connections to Genesis and Daniel. One more that I will highlight, I'm going to skip a bunch of them, but one more that I'll highlight is, what, is that when, when Daniel is, is thrown into the lion's den, right? He, he's thrown into the lion's den for, for persevering in prayer against the king's wicked decree. And we see, in a way, the lions and the lion's den are, are made subject to Daniel, he exhibits, by, by God's power, obviously, um, a, a picture of true human dominion, of true human rule over the creation. So even the most violent beasts of the earth do not harm Daniel at Yahweh's command. Are lions are called king, king of the jungle, is that right? That's true? You could, yes? Okay. <laughs> So not even the king of the jungle can attack what Yahweh doesn't allow. And, and Daniel, in that way, is showing true dominion, true, true rule over the creation. And many of Old Testament scholars have noted that, that 
on the whole, the first six chapters of Daniel emphasize those themes of dominion and authority, specifically the rule and reign of God. So even the, the, the pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, would eventually confess that, that God's dominion and kingdom are eternal. So it's, a, it's quite a striking passage coming from a, a pagan king. Now, in, in chapter 7 through 12, the, the image we saw in chapter 2 of, of the king's dream of the, the gigantic human image is, is further explained and expanded. And it, it's explained in a further series of visions or dreams, which might be unhelpful. You might just want, like, why can't he just give me an argument? But God is much wiser than us. So he gave us visions and dreams to Daniel, and these have been notoriously difficult to interpret, at least in, in the details and all of the nuances of the visions. Um, and so the goal here is not to get lost in all of the weeds, although that's not unimportant, and that there's good work that's being done that should be done on examining, examining all the details of the passage. But for us, we want to get the big picture, the, the, the main idea that contributes to our understanding of the overall story. And we can be grateful that doing that, getting the big picture main idea, is not so difficult. The main message, I think, is quite clear, even though there, there are for sure some, some mysterious things included in the vision, as we're going to see. And that message is this, just a big idea. The Most High God will deliver His people and give them a never-ending inheritance in His everlasting kingdom that will rule forever and ever. The, the Most High God will deliver His people and give them a never-ending inheritance in his everlasting kingdom that will rule forever and ever. Which sounds, that's wonderful news, right? That's the big idea. And Dempster argues that the, the series of dreams and visions are like a series of paintings of the same scene, of the same event, which with, with each successive painting adding more detail for us, or adding different detail of the same event. I think that's an extremely helpful illustration of, what, of what's happening with these visions. And so the first vision in chapter 7 shows instead of a, of a gigantic human figure representing the kingdoms of the earth, there are four sea beasts, beasts, I don't know what I said, sea beasts that come in succession each one more, more horrifying than the previous one, concluded by the one um, final most evil beast, or the evilest beast. And each of these beasts were given authority to rule on earth, and the last one, the most wicked one, distinguishes himself by his, his proud and boastful speech. Does that sound familiar to anyone? I think we should connect this with, with the beast we met in Genesis 3, whose speech was, was craftier than all of the other creatures, the serpent. So now at, at this point in the vision, the scene then, then shifts to heaven, and there, there's a court, and then sitting on the, the throne is the divine judge. The text calls him the, the Ancient of Days, and he opens up the book and pronounces a verdict of judgment. And when the verdict is rendered, the 
the beasts on the earth meets their end, and, and all of the beasts are stripped of their authority. And in verses 13 through 14, we see, I think, some of the most important verses in the entire Old Testament. I say that a lot. But there's a lot of Old Testament, and I've only highlighted a few passages, so it is one of the most important, if I can get there. This is Daniel 7, verses 13 through, through 14, and I'll just read it for us. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So I'm hoping just by doing this study, you reading this passage, you know this is very important language, and it's referring to a very important character. And so this phrase, son of man, is, is hugely significant. We saw this phrase a ton in, in one of the latter prophet books that we went through. Does anybody remember what prophet was referred to as the son of man a ton? To test. Blake can't answer. He might not know, though. He doesn't know. Ezekiel, yes. Passed the test. Ezekiel. And this phrase is used um, in the Old Testament in the sense that it's used in Ezekiel and in places like Psalm 8 to refer to a human man. However, this son of man described here seems more than just a mere human. He, he was coming on the clouds of heaven. So notice that phrase, clouds of heaven. This could be interpreted, I think it should be interpreted, as a symbol of divine authority. He's, he's coming on the clouds of heaven. That's a symbol, an image of divine authority. And on top of this, the Son of Man has conferred all authority, all rule and dominion over the entire world. All peoples, nations, and languages will serve Him, or you could say, worship Him. So the text pretty clearly indicates to us that this is not just any ordinary man. And it's a passage like this that, that is so important when we look at the, the life and ministry of, of Jesus, who refers to himself as the Son of Man, more than any other title in the, in the New Testament. That's how he declares or discloses himself. So this is a vision of, of the reigning Christ, who will one day rule the create, entire creation under his dominion. And so most commentators of Daniel note that the vision here in chapter 7 parallels the, the, the eschatological or end times vision that we saw in chapter 2. But again, this vision supplies more detail. So instead of, remember in chapter 2, instead of a rock that, or a stone that destroys the gigantic human figure, we see the Son of Man takes that, that rock's place. And I think, I think Jesus explicitly connects these two things in his teaching when he claims that he is the rock that crushes. And just like the vision of, of chapter 2, this climatic appearance of the Son of Man will take place in the latter days, in the, the end of times. 
And Dempster reiterates that the, the four beasts are, are representative beasts with, with representative of the, the wicked kingdoms of this world. And they, they have superhuman strength. Right? I think they're representing the dominion of the devil, the rule of Satan, and the kingdoms of, of the wicked world that stand opposed to God. And in contrast, their great destroyer, I really love this. This is great. Their great destroyer is distinctly human. He does not have great strength. He is not a massive beast. He is one like a son of man. And this human, the son of man, seems to have no inherent power and authority in himself. And what Dempster points out is that the son of man in Daniel does not seek to establish his own authority or attain his own authority through violence or some other earthly means. But what happens? He's simply just given authority over the world by God. He's given the authority by God, by the Ancient of Days. And the parallel with the rock in chapter 2, I think it is pretty key here in Dempster's argument, because he connects, remember, the rock to the line of David, the rock in chapter 2 to the line of David. And he thinks that the Son of Man passage affirms that reading. So the passage here in Daniel 7. His victory will result in universal dominion, which has only been, we've only seen this articulated for one coming from the line of David. This is the promise given to David. Think of places like 2 Samuel 7 or, or the, the, the Lion of Judah passage, that that one from the line of Judah will rule the nations with his scepter. I think these two can be connected if we, if we connect the rock and the vision in chapter 2 with the line of David and the Son of Man in chapter 7, who would then be one from the line of David. There's a little bit of a stretch there. I think it's there. Um, some, there there's quite a bit of debate about that. Um, so, for time's sake, yes. What was the passage in Luke? 20, 17 through 18, is that right? Yes. Luke 20, 17 through 18. So, for time's sake, let's move on to, um, let's skip chapter 8, go to chapter 9 of Daniel. Here we get more detail of the final days through another vision. And this chapter specifically echoes portions of Jeremiah. Daniel is, is pondering the scriptures. He, he's thinking over Jeremiah's reference, which is interesting, right? He has, he's reading Jeremiah, the, the prophecy of Jeremiah. That's just an interesting t- thing to note. But he, he references the, to the 70-year duration of exile that we see in Jeremiah 25 and um, I think chapter 29. This reference to a a 70-year exile. And then Daniel then gives a a prayer to God that he would bring an end to to Jerusalem's desolation and exile. And Daniel is given the answer to his prayer that, that a new world order is going to come after the completion of not just 70 years, but 77s. And it's very difficult to interpret exactly what is intended here because... It consists of a, of a series of numbers. It's hard to know exactly what these numbers represent. 
77s have been decreed until this time of righteousness and fulfillment uh, of this new world order at the end of times. And, and verses 25 through 27, we see these numbers broken down further. So we get more numbers, which is scary for anyone who doesn't know basic arithmetic, which might be me. So we see the number 70 is divided into seven sevens, 62 sevens, and then a final seven. And so I'm just going to let the commentator Mitchell Chase make some sense of these numbers for you. He writes, the, the 77s begin when the word is given to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And the 70th seven is associated with the anointed one being cut off and making a covenant with many, putting an end to sacrifice and offering. So this is obviously pointing to, to Christ and and I think that, that is the big idea and what's important for us to grasp. There's a ton of debate surrounding this length of time and, and what it means, when it will happen, um, when exactly it will happen. Um, and so I follow some of the, the thought and writings of, of a scholar like Meredith Klein. And this is, this is the route that Dempster goes to, to, to argue that the number should be taken symbolically. The, the 70, all of the 70s, they, they should be taken symbolically, and we shouldn't press the text to be too literalistic than it was intended to be. And so I think that, bets, that, that fits best with the context, and it, it fits with the genre of literature that we're reading. But what is clear, and what sometimes gets lost in the debate about the timing of these things, is that there is more detail added in this vision. Dempster writes, the, the cumulative effects of these visions indicate that the 70th week marks the onset of persecution of the saints. This is begun by the execution of the person named the Messiah. And during this week, even the, the temple is desecrated. But by the end of the week, which again Dempster is taking as a symbolic length of time, by the end of the week... The enemy is destroyed, and a new world order of forgiveness and healing has been introduced. So I think those are some, some wonderful truths that we see fulfilled in the coming and, and death of, of Christ that we find in the New Testament. And in chapters 10 through 12, the, the, the picture is completed of these series of visions of the same event. Or, or the time frame with, with Daniel's, we, we, we see Daniel's final and longest vision here in Daniel's 10 through 12. It describes the, the great war and final conflict that will ultimately end in the defeat of the wicked and the resurrection of the dead. Some to everlasting life and others to shame and, and everlasting punishment, everlasting contempt. Obviously, a, a ton could be said here, but I don't want us to miss, again, the big picture or the function that Daniel plays in the, the, the Old Testament narrative. We see Daniel take up themes that we've seen throughout this storyline of the Old Testament, and he continues to develop them and focusing on, on the clash between anti-God kingdoms, so earthly, worldly kingdoms under the dominion of Satan, and the coming kingdom of God. And it contributes, Daniel contributes to the storyline 
by resuming the narrative storyline in, in exile and gives end times clarity, eschatological clarity, by charting uh, an end times outline by which the, the varied prophecies we saw in the latter prophets, so think Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, where, where those prophecies are given a more systematic organization. We get some clarity. Um, I'm laughing because it's funny to say that Daniel produces clarity when there's so much disagreement on what, what is happening there. But I do think he, he's right that we, if we truly do understand the big picture or the, the meaning of the visions in the Old Testament narrative, it does bring us greater clarity of what these promises are going to look like at a future time. So any questions or comments about Daniel? We got Daniel done in 30 minutes, which is amazing. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think there's something distinct that that does happen when Christ comes, the first um, advent, right? And this is where theologians have been helpful with the category of, a, of an already and not yet, which we've talked about privately. Um, but just essentially the idea that the kingdom of God is ushered in with Christ and his first advent, but it's not fully um, consummated until the end of times. It's the second advent. But the, these promises have an already, there's, there's some already partial fulfillments, you could say, and some not yet, some things that are going to occur in the future um, at the end of times. Yeah, I don't think they would characterize life after, the, in the church age, so after the ascension, death, resurrection, ascension, as exile. That, that's definitely not, that's helpful. All right, let's move on to the book of Esther, which doesn't come after Daniel in the English wording. It might have taken me, it did take me uh, like five minutes to find Esther. This is, I'm very used to this ordering, the Tanakh ordering, but it's, after Ezra, or no, Nehemiah, right? Right before the Psalms, or right before Job. There's a danger in learning the Tanakh ordering, because then you just, you don't even know how to, yeah. <laughs> okay, so Esther is pretty fascinating. I really like the book of Esther. Um, it's a, a wonderful narrative, I think, much like, there's a lot of good Old Testament narratives that would make great movie, movies. I think this would make a great movie. Um, Esther continues the themes of, of exile and persecution that we saw in Daniel, but this time under the rule of the Persians, so a, another pagan kingdom. And the Jews, the Israelites, face, face a genocide that I think echoes back or, or signals back to, to previous genocidal decrees like, like Pharaoh and, and Exodus, that, that sought to eliminate the, the people of God. And this comes about because a Jewish man named Mordecai will not bow down before a, a Persian official named Haman, who has been, Haman's been elevated to the, to the second highest position in the empire. Haman is very upset by Mordecai's defiance, his unwillingness to bow his knee, that's Mordecai, to Haman and, and the Persian kingdom. And so he, he determines to destroy not just Mordecai, but the entire Jewish people, the, the entire race. And Dempster points out, as many others have, that 
Much of what happens in the book seems fortuitous, even as the, the name of God is not mentioned in the book. So there seems to be a lot of good fates and, and, and chance or fortune occurring for the Jews. But make no mistake, the absence of, of Yahweh's name in the book doesn't mean God is not working in, in history. We, we see that a Jewish woman, Esther, becomes queen of the Persian king. And it just so happens that, that Mordecai is this girl's uncle. And using her influence, Esther helps pre- prevent the extinction of the Israelites and actually turns the tables on Haman, the, the Persian official, and his family who are executed, who are killed as a result of Esther's faithfulness. And Dempster points out something interesting. I had not seen this or, or thought of this before, but, but Haman is actually a, a descendant of Agag, or Agog, who, who was a notorious Amalekite king who we, we saw spared by Saul, King Saul, way back in the book of Samuel, which I think is an interesting note. And it's also interesting to note that the text tells us Mordecai is a descendant of Saul. So Dempster writes, this, this could mean, if read in the wider context, that even the house or line of Saul has been redeemed of a disobedient heart. I think that's a, that's a possible way you could read this story. And that would make sense in some sense that the line of Saul finished what Saul didn't do back in, in, in Samuel. And Haman, from the seat of Agag, finally meets his death as he should have faced in the book of Samuel. I think there's, there, there's probably something there that could be researched more. And this, Dempster also argues that, that in light of the larger narrative and the placement of Esther after Daniel, we gain some insight into the, the meaning. When the exiled Israelites are in the, their most vulnerable position and the, the Jewish queen is confronted by Mordecai, Esther is... is challenged essentially by Mordecai with a challenge to plead with the the king of Persia, to, to plead with him to save her people. And in those words from Mordecai, we see a, kind of an end times blueprint for the people of this God that we saw described in, in Daniel and in other places in the latter prophets. So turn with me to, to Esther chapter 4. See, I'm glad I marked it, or I would be here for a long time. It's far away, see? That's pretty far away from Daniel. So Esther chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 13 through 15. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself... Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows, whatever you have not come to the, to the kingdom for... Let me read that over. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So this is probably the most famous verse in this book. Um, 
And read in context, I think there's a, there's a powerful statement of biblical theology here, or, or of the whole Old Testament storyline, on the importance and necessity of the, the Israelite nation. Mordecai knows the truth that, that the Jewish nation will survive no matter what because of an overarching purpose to history and God being the author of history, where by faith he knows that the, the promises of God will come to pass. They're going to come to pass, and Israel will be delivered. That's how, he, that's how he's speaking, right, to Esther. And that's, that's the story. That's true. And so really the challenge Mordecai gives to, to Esther is get in on the party, or, or, or this train is leaving no matter what. God is going to do what he's going to do, so you might as well hop on. Right? God is going to save Israel, so maybe he rose you up for such a time as this. So participate in this glorious salvation plan. And Dempster points out that this is fitting, coming right after Daniel, which proclaimed very similar truths. The kingdom of God will eventually triumph over all earthly kingdoms. Right? That's what we saw in the visions of of Daniel, whether that, that is Babylon or Persia. And that is really, I think, the, the big point of the book of Esther in the wider canon of the Old Testament. And so one final point of connection that, that Dempster makes, which I think is important to, of, of, of Esther to the rest of the Old Testament, is that Esther's opposition to Haman continues the major theme running through the, the narrative of, of the woman against the, the beast, or you could say that the seed of the woman and the seed of the, the serpent. So be ju- I think it would be good just to recall these. Um, I'm reading here from Dimster. He says, we see Eve versus the serpent, Sarah and Rebecca versus barrenness, Miriam versus the Pharaoh, Deborah and Yael versus Sisera, Ruth and Naomi versus famine and death, Hannah versus barrenness. So in all the examples of struggle, these women of faith are engaged in a battle, sometimes a physical battle, literally, Yael driving a stake into the guy's head, but also a a cosmic battle between, again, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent to save the people of God. And so I think the victory of Esther over, over Haman continues that that pattern that we've seen throughout the Old Testament. So now the the last two books of the Old Testament and the Tanakh ordering, which are actually, there there are four books in in our English orderings. There are Ezra, Nehemiah, and 1 and 2 Chronicles. Ezra, Nehemiah, and 1 and 2 Chronicles. And the way we're going to finish these books and the time we have remaining is that, that Dempster analyzes these two books together, kind of as one unit, and I think that's right, especially if you're just viewing them for their contribution to the overall narrative of the Old Testament. And remember that in the original manuscripts in, in, in the Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah were one book, and uh, same with First and Second Chronicles one book. And so in these final contributions to, to the literature of the Old Testament, the kingdom of God is, is again extremely prominent. 
Dempster writes, it's as if there is now a clearer articulation of a concept that was important, but had not yet received a precise linguistic expression. And I think that, that that's, that's right. We gain a lot of insight in these books, as well as what we've seen in, in Daniel and Esther on the coming kingdom of God. Now, one interesting thing about the ordering of these books in the Tanakh is that the, the canonical ordering... Um, is different than the, the temporal or, or chronological ordering of the books. So Ezra and Nehemiah per, per, precedes chronicles in the ordering, even though it contains narrative that is chronologically after the events of chronicles. So it's kind of counterintuitive to us. But Dempster spends quite a bit of time here answering why this is the case, because he believes it's pretty significant to our our understanding of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and, and Chronicles. So Ezra and Nehemiah begin where Chronicles ends with the, the decree of Cyrus to restore the temple and return the exiles to Judah. So you could say it begins with, with a restoration project of sorts, while, while Chronicles ends with that event the, the, that restoration project, the, the return to the land, looming in the very new, near future. But when we read Ezra and Nehemiah, what do we find? Is, is everything great and, and all the promises we saw in the prophets and, and the people's return to the land and a glorious future with a new world order, with a Messiah reigning over all the kingdoms of the earth, is that what we find? No, no, we do not find that. Um, and actually what we find in Ezra and Nehemiah and, and their restoration project is, is not a good sight at all. The reality is that there's widespread compromise. There's, there's assimilation to the pagan culture, a rejection of Yahweh, unfaithfulness to the covenant, and devotion to their own pursuits instead of the kingdom of God. So this is anything but a new kingdom full of blessing for the entire world that we've been seeing all of these promises about. And Dempster argues it actually paints a very bleak picture of the restoration and return to the land. And so I think we, we can see this clearly if we highlight one place in Ezra, which is a great name for a baby boy, by the way, Ezra. <laughs> in, in chapters 9 and 10... Ezra takes a, the drastic measure of, of ordering mass divorce of the people, because right, the, the, the uh, Israelite people took foreign wives against right, the command, the law of God and the Old Covenant, and he orders mass divorce to maintain the religious purity of the Israelites, so they did not mix with the pagan cultures. And I simply just want to ask, what does that order from Ezra tell us about the state of the people? Right? They're still very wicked and pursuing things contrary to, to, to the law of God. And I think we see a similar situation in Nehemiah. We see spiritual and moral decline of the people and reinforces the, the failure, so to speak, of this restoration to the land, of the land. And so by not ending with this book, 
The Old Testament is purposefully ending on, on a positive eschatological note, a positive end times note. So what Dempster means when, when he's arguing this way is that, that the reforms that Ezra and Nehemiah instill are the beginnings of restoration, but they don't bring full restoration. Ezra, much like we saw with Moses in the Exodus period, cannot produce a change in the people's hearts. And that's what's really important. He can't, he can't circumcise their hearts. Only the Spirit of God can. So we see that an event must come at some day in the future, at some time in the future. The exile then continues in a way, even though Israel is back in the land. Even though there, there, there has been a return in body to the land, there, there has not been one in spirit. And that is, I think, the, the big distinction that we need to make. The people do not have transformed hearts. And, and the, the conclusion with Chronicles shows that Israel is still in exile, even though it, ha- it has returned to the land. Dempster writes, Chronicles indicates that the return has already happened, but by, close, by closing with the decree of Cyrus, which is how Chronicles ends, the decree of Cyrus to, to return back to the land to be, rebuild the temple, a statement is being made that real exile will not be over until the Messiah comes. So by the placement of the books, right, by ending with Chronicles, a statement, this is Dempster right again, a statement is, be, is being made that real exile will not be over until the Messiah comes. So we see Chronicles concludes with, with urging an exiled people, actually commanding an exiled people of God to return home and, and build the temple. And the temple, which we, we've seen this throughout, especially in the books of Samuel and Kings, the temple is inextricably tied to to the line and dynasty of David, whom the Messiah will come through this line. So that, that's kind of the, the end times hope the Old Testament ends on in the book of Chronicles. And read in, in context, we see the command to rebuild the temple after 70 years of exile is is a direct echo back to, to the vision in Daniel 9. And Cyrus, the king of Persia, who issues this de- decree to rebuild the temple, we saw him depicted in the, in the prophetic literature, specifically in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1, as God's Messiah. That's what Cyrus is referred to as, as God's anointed one. So God's one that, that would be the catalyst, so to speak, in bringing his people to the land. But we know, right, from Ezra and Nehemiah that this Messiah of God is not the one that was going to to deliver them from their spiritual exile. That's what I think makes Ezra and Nehemiah so important for us in the context of the Old Testament. We see there's still something fundamentally wrong with the people of God. And it wasn't always about just getting back to the land. There had to be as Moses predicted all the way back in Deuteronomy, a heart transformation. So Dempster writes that the 70 years of exile may be over, but people clearly are still in spiritual exile at the end of the Old Testament. And a long spiritual exile still awaits before the Messiah comes to begin to restore all things. 
And if we just look at the context of Chronicles, right, which is the, the, the last book in the Old Testament in this ordering, we get reminded of the goal of the, the whole Old Testament story. That there is coming a messianic figure who will come and restore the dominion of humanity over creation. Chronicles recaps for us these all-important themes that we've been, been studying through this book of, of dominion and dynasty, and it, and it clarifies them in a way. There's, there's an obvious connection in Chronicles to the, to the first book of the Old Testament, Genesis, and we talked about this way back when at the beginning of this study, but I'll remind us, um, is that they're, they're the only two books that contain lengthy uh, genealogies. And so the text of Chronicles starts with, with ten chapters of genealogies that start with Adam. Right? This shows the link with, with Israel, the people of God, and, and the human race at large, the, the, the creation of humans at large. And then comes the genealogies we saw in Genesis in an, in an abbreviated form, followed by the, the genealogies of the tribes of Israel, and Dempster points out it's important to note that, that Judah and then later on David's ancestors and, and royal descendants are prominently featured as, as the foundation or you could say the, the backbone of these genealogies. So all the genealogies and, and chronicles end when, when David arrives on the historical scene and when the narrative picks up in Chronicles in chapter 11... And picks up with, with Saul's demise and David's rise. So it's clear just from the, the literary structure of Chronicles, there's, there's a main character, so to speak. Who is it? David. David, right? David is, I think, the, the key figure that the, chronicle, the chronicler is highlighting for us. And if Chronicles is a summation or, or a retelling of Israel's history which I think it is, then it's also clear that David is central to the Old Testament story, the Old Testament as a whole, especially when we think of the, the theme of genealogy. So in, in Chronicles, the, the geographical focus is centered on Jerusalem, which I don't think should surprise us if, if we've been following the, the Old Testament story, and specifically the, the focus is on the temple, the place of God's presence to which the, the people can, can come and worship the Lord. Dempster argues that the temple dominates the narrative in, in a big chunk of Chronicles. So I think all the way from, from 1 Chronicles 19 to, to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, that might not be super precise, but from around there, the, the, the narrative is dedicated to the the temple and the role of the temple. And so the, the reality and centrality of the temple reiterates what we saw in the book of Kings, that the world's hopes are found in, in, in the genealogy of David and the geography of Jerusalem and the temple. But then comes, in, in the book of Chronicles, the recounting of, of the sin that leads to the, the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, and the people are exiled to Babylon. And it even seems like the, the exile in Babylon have, have the last word in the canon of the Old Testament. But again, be reminded again of the decree from 
Cyrus, that, that pagan king, that exiled Israelites could go back to Babylon, from Babylon to rebuild the temple. And so Dempster argues that that great hope remains as this command to rebuild the temple is nothing less than, than a catalyst for the fulfillment of the prophetic hopes. A catalyst for the fulfillment of the prophetic hopes. So f- remember, from the temple is where the, the presence of God is where, where streams flow of living water and will, will produce life. These are these language coming from Ezekiel. Um, of these visions of the, the temple, abundant, everlasting life. And we saw in other places in the prophetic literature, over and over again, the, the temple to be referred to. Sometimes uh, Zion would be referred to, where, where God's tra- transforming presence dwells, where, where, and will bring together God's people from all the nations, from every tribe and, and tongue. So Dempster argues then that the goal of the Old Testament, just as it ends here, is the great house of God, which is now, remember, is inclusive of all the nations. It's now going to not just be for Israel, the nation of Israel. It's going to be for all the nations, but not just the physical house of God, the temple, but also the the house of God in the sense of the word of dynasty, the dynasty of God through the line of David, which is what Chronicles centers on or, or centers on. So at the end of the Old Testament, and really re- reading the whole thing, it orients the reader or, or, or it points us to the future. And as such, the, the, the story, as we come to the end of Chronicles, is actually unfinished, Right? And as the story closes, Dempster writes, The long, dark night of exile awaits a sequel, the dawning of a new light that will radiate to the ends of the earth. I think that's just a beautiful way to capture how the Old Testament ends, anticipating the sequel where a new light will radiate to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what we find. And that's exactly what we find in our New Testaments. Um, and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so next week, we're going to wrap up our, our study through this book, and we're going to go and, and think about some New Testament reflections based on all of these biblical theological patterns and themes that we found, and um, talk about the importance of, of typology, which is a very important um, concept. So any final questions or comments? before we dismiss for today. Yes, John. Yeah, that would be great, actually. Yeah, feel free. Yes, feel free to email me. I know John will, so that'll be good. Some emails. But you can email me any questions. Um, So we'll see you next week. You guys are dismissed.